This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre-recorded. Consider a career with the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers. As a Boilermaker apprentice, you'll earn while you learn. We offer excellent wages and benefits. And as part of our no-cost, hands-on apprenticeship program, you'll learn from the best in state-of-the-art training centers and on the job. Become a union Boilermaker and get on your way to a great career. Visit Boilermakers.org or call 844-IBB-WELD. Listen to the Labor and Energy Show and get educated from expert guests about climate change. What they say and who they are will surprise you. Presented by PBF Energy, Neuter Construction, and Furness Electrical Contractors. The Labor and Energy Show, this Sunday night at 6. And guess where this additional billion gallons of biofuel is going to come from? It's going to come from abroad. That's not an American first energy policy. We're in this together. Labor's in this. Building trades are in this. Refiners are in this. American consumers need us to do this too. Now across the Jacob Media Network, welcome to the Labor and Energy Show special. Exclusively presented by the PBF Energy Paulsboro Refinery and the PBF Delaware City Refinery in collaboration with the labor unions that build our communities. If you fix this RINs issue, you're looking at a reduction of 25 to 30 cents a gallon. This is the Labor and Energy Show, bringing labor leaders, national experts, and political influencers together to educate you about fancy terms like RINs and Reggie, while explaining the truth about energy independence. Welcome to the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. And welcome in everyone to another edition of the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause as we broadcast to you every week. And we're so thankful that you're tuning in. Remember, and you he'll, you'll hear J-Doc say it many, many times. It's all about educating the listening audience and listening uh, and the public uh, so we can change the narrative. J-Doc has a great show planned for us today before we get into the broadcast. I want to emphasize what we talked about a week ago. Big news for the Labor and Energy Show as we expand our reach and we expand our messaging out to the western side of Pennsylvania, broadcasting beginning in July on KDKA in Pittsburgh. So our coverage now for the Labor and Energy uh, goes from western Pennsylvania and expands into Ohio and West Virginia down into uh, Philadelphia, over to Jersey, down in the Delaware, into Maryland, and then ending down in Washington, D.C. So we continue our journey on the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. Don't forget, if you down, or if you miss any of today's broadcast, you can listen to it uh, via podcast. Go to Apple or Spotify and simply search the Labor and Energy Show. We'll get started. After the break, PBF Energy wants you to know hidden RIN costs are adding almost 30 cents to every gallon at the pump and pushing independent American refineries to the brink. It doesn't have to be this way. President Biden can lower gas prices and protect thousands of union refinery jobs by fixing the renewable fuel standard. And he should. Visit fuelingusjobs.com slash take action to urge President Biden to stop the RIN sanity and fix the renewable fuel standard 
today. Neuter Integrated Multicraft Contractors has been a force since 1896. That's right, 1896. And specializes in welding, piping, mechanical, structural, constructability reviews, project management, and rigging design services. For a free consultation, call Neuter at 314-421-7600. Neuter proudly serves petroleum refining, chemical processing, power generation, and alternative energy. Get in touch with Neuter at 314-421-7600. The Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters is proud to present skilled union workers, including the workers that build and maintain our energy infrastructure. The safest, best trained, and most productive carpenters in the country are on the job. Whether it's energy from nuclear, wind, coal, natural gas, or offshore wind, the EAS carpenters are ready to provide the construction need of an energy industry our families depend on. If you're interested in a job in construction, visit EAScarpenters.org or follow us on social at EAS Carpenters. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are presented by PBF Energy and supported by members of the labor union community, a collaborative to educate the public and change the narrative. Welcome back, everyone, to the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. Let's get started on today's topic, J-Doc getting ready uh, for a big show today. And also, J-Doc, that expansion out into western Pennsylvania on KDKA. Offline, we talk about it all the time. We're super, super excited to bring the messaging, to bring the education across the state. J-Doc, over to you, sir. Yeah, we've got a great show today, Joe. Uh, fantastic broadcast. Uh uh, uh, we'd love to, we're very excited, like you said, uh, about uh, the launch in, on KDKA in, 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 uh, in Pittsburgh, of course, as part of our Energy Education and Awareness Initiative. Uh, so much going on there. To, our, our goal is to educate, obviously, the general public uh, and, our, and our political leaders, policymakers uh, on common sense and energy. Uh, today is going to be a fantastic show. We have uh, Stephanie Wisman, who's the Executive Director uh, of API Pennsylvania. Uh, Stephanie, how are you? I'm great, Joe. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. If you will, uh, I'd like to start off. If, tell a little bit about yourself, your role as, as the uh, executive director, and, and a little bit about uh, the API. Absolutely. Happy to do that. So, uh, yes, I'm Stephanie Wisman. I'm the executive director of the American Petroleum Institute of Pennsylvania, uh, or otherwise known as API Pennsylvania. And we are a state office. We're an affiliate of the American Petroleum Institute based in Washington, D.C. API Pennsylvania is based in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And we are the only national trade organization that represents all segments of the natural gas and oil industry. So that's the exploration and production, the transportation of that product. Think about pipeline, barge, rail, things of that nature, predominantly pipeline. Uh, downstream, we'll think about traditional oil refineries or petrochemical uh, complexes, as well as service and supply companies to the industry. And we have approximately 600 members that fit into all of those categories. And uh, we also have, in addition to having the Pennsylvania-based office, we're one of eight regional offices for API for legislative and regulatory and public relations uh, topics. But we also have an offshore safety office, API does in Houston, Texas as well as we have offices around the world in Singapore, Dubai, Beijing, and Rio de Janeiro. And we're primarily, we're a domestic uh, national trade association. However, we recognize that our members are doing work not only in our country, but around the world, as well as utilizing our standards 
And, and believe it or not, Joe, we were founded, while certainly we are an advocacy organization on behalf of our members, but we were actually founded as an organization over 100 years ago as a standard-setting organization. So we, have, we maintain 800 standards and recommended practices for all aspects of the natural gas and oil industry, and these really are the standards by which industry is measured, and so much so that um, many national uh, regulatory agencies, as well as our state Department of Environmental Protection, uh, utilize and cite many of our standards in regards to the industry. And 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 so today's conversation, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit a little bit about what's going on in Pennsylvania and, of course, nationally. And so, have, having said that, um, yeah, a new report by PricewaterhouseCoopers shows how significant our natural gas and oil industry are uh, to our state and, of course, the national economy. Could you walk us through the results of that study? You know, what what are the numbers in terms of the industry's contribution to jobs, tax bases, and the economy? Um, talk about PA and then talk about nationally, if you will. Absolutely. Happy to do that. So last month, uh, we commissioned, API commissioned with PricewaterhouseCoopers, Uh, to do a study to see what the economic impact is of the natural gas and oil industry in the country, and we also broke it down by state. So this was last month. We commissioned the report, and we do these uh, reports, Joe, approximately every two or three years uh, just to update the numbers. But, yeah, I'll tell you what, significant numbers um, came out of this. So first of all, to break it down to Pennsylvania. So in Pennsylvania, and this is based on 2021 numbers, uh, in 2021, Pennsylvania, we supported four, or the natural gas and oil industry supported over 423,000 jobs, total jobs, and to be exact, 423,700. And when you break that down, um, over 93,000 uh, 93, of those jobs are direct jobs and 330,000 indirect jobs. And when you look at it from what percentage that is of Pennsylvania's total employment, that's 5.6%. Which, which is a nice number. And also, we, as an industry in 2021, we contributed $75 billion to Pennsylvania's total gross domestic product, and product, and that uh, represents 8.9% or 9%, if you will, of the state's total. So significant numbers, uh, for sure, at the state level. And as nationally, if you pivot to that, uh, nationally, we support 10.8 million jobs, or 5.4% of the total U.S. employment. And when you take a look at uh, GDP, gross domestic product, we're looking at nearly $1.8 trillion, and that accounts for approximately 7.6% of the national total. And so it's interesting, you know, these are, uh, when, when, to say interesting times is a little bit, uh, you know, of an understatement in, in, in regards to our energy sector and, and what's going on. Part of the, um, you know, our, when we got into, uh, so we've been doing the labor uh, show in, in Philadelphia, you know, for the last nine years, and, and uh, we get involved in all uh, of the labor, diff- different labor sectors, and uh, we got called into the uh, the situation at PES refinery several years ago just to, to do a couple broadcasts and uh, what it's so confusing because 
uh, when you listen to these numbers, okay, and you see what's going on today, our goal is to educate the public, but also our policymakers um, on common sense and energy. And when you hear when you hear numbers like that, okay, and you hear, uh, in a sense, um, it, it, what what's going on in, in in our country, okay, it is incredibly confusing. OK, um, in a sense, um, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're shutting ourselves down. Now, we're labor Democrats. We're Democrat. Uh, you know, we're, we're a, a, a labor, uh, you know, media platform. And so uh, typically speaking, we, you know, we tend to, uh, you know, we have support with 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 with, with a lot of our uh, Democratic leaders. And um, they've, you know, with labor goes hand in hand. We're not a we're not a political party. So, of course, we work with both sides of, uh, of the aisle. But when you listen to numbers like that, and you look at what's going on in our country, it's ridiculously confusing because uh, we have uh, labor leaders. Okay, now we have a, a you know a board of directors, energy education and awareness board of directors, so comprised of labor leaders and our our, our energy uh, leadership, uh, and 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 we're looking at a lot of these issues, and it's almost like a ca- uh, a cancel culture. We're canceling ourselves and giving up. Uh, you know, you look at these numbers and imagine what it would be like if we shut ourselves down. Um, yeah. And, and and so our whole goal is because a lot of our policy makers don't really understand what they're the decisions that they're making we're going to talk about um you know uh, may we've we've talked about especially last week on our on our broadcast ev mandates and a lot of the things that are going on that we don't even know we're writing checks that i don't need, you know even know if we're going to be able to cash because we're, we're so early in a lot of these areas talk about that because these numbers are so impacting okay i just sit there and say wow just imagine um, if, if we if, if we shut this down, OK, what the magnitude of the impact would be. And that's what makes it so confusing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. And I, and I understand that. And yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the natural gas and oil activity not only contributes directly to Pennsylvania's economy, but, you know, as we talk about indirectly, but also boosts manufacturing, logistics, banking, construction, many other sectors in the state and provides many, as you know, many good paying union jobs. And bottom line is that we all prosper when Pennsylvania and America largely leads on energy production, period. And, you know, let's face it, with fossil fuels, right, natural gas and oil, I mean, we would not have our modern way of life without without natural gas and oil. The derivatives, many people don't realize that the derivatives from natural gas and oil go into these products that we depend on every day to leave our modern way of life. And, you know, if you're looking at shutting down, you know, various segments of the industry, it's a very bleak picture, quite frankly, and it will be extremely impactful, not only from an economic side, but on the way that we carry on our modern lives. And, and you know, so we've been doing, uh, you know, the labor and energy uh, broadcast for a year and a half across the, the mid-Atlantic region. And, uh, you know, we have our energy education awareness initiative. And uh, one of the things that we realize is that the details, like having a conversation about shutting ourselves down and actually talking about the facts and the, and, and the information um, are typically not involved in that conversation. And 
um, to take it a step to, to, to take it a step further, um, we are you know in a situation where um, regular people every day um, who are environmental you know I call them um, kitchen table environmentalists we, we all are we all care about the environment we all just but as we've done these shows we've had a number of trade organization leaders on here and a lot of energy sector company uh, you, you know uh, executives and everybody there's no one that doesn't care about the environment. Okay. That's right. That's some of, right. Some of our, when I think it was Kathy Reheis Boyd um, from California, her, she, her actual, uh, you know, her, I think her, her uh, executive position and her, and her entire education uh, background is based on the environment. And so, you know, talk about that if you would, because um, we do it better here and more efficiently and cleaner in America than they do across the world. That's right. That's exactly right. I mean, you're not going to find cleaner natural gas or oil anywhere else in the world. We have we have the regulatory structure set up. We have got strict guidelines, regulatory regulations. You know, the industry that must that, that the industry must follow. And you know, and let's let's be candid here. I mean, we are not going to meet as a nation, as a world, the Paris Climate Accord decarbonization goals without natural gas. I mean, that is a fact. Uh, and because of natural gas, we are at generational lows when it comes to carbon emissions, particularly coming from the energy generation sector. Um, and you can definitely point to the natural gas industry as to why we, at year upon year, decreasing our carbon emissions. And and that's something too. I mean, with the natural gas and oil industry, you know, we are we are very technically innovative. And we spend a lot of capital on, on the latest and greatest technologies to make sure that we are good environmental stewards, good corporate citizens, to make sure that we are shrinking our environmental footprint. And we continue to do that because it's good business and it's the right thing to do. Yeah, and, and, and no question about that. And our goal, obviously, is to, is to educate our, our, our leadership, obviously, and, and, and talk about Because a lot of the people that we talk to on a daily basis, um, they just don't understand uh, the consequences. We've, we've had, and we, we, we try to cover every uh, area of, of uh, you know, of course, we care about our jobs. It's a big deal. But we don't want to, not at the expense of the planet, but at the same time, when you look at how efficient we do things here, Okay, and, and and when you look at what's going on uh, around the world and around the globe, I mean, our commitment uh, to 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 not only uh, doing a fantastic job and uh, with our with our energy resources, uh, but also to our environment is second to none. And and so, uh, no question about that. It's 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 a it's a vitally important uh, conversation. And we uh, want our we have a mouthpiece here, and we want our listeners who are. Uh, you know, our fa- our union members, our workforce, our, our, our general public to understand that we're on the same page. One of the things a lab- labor leader, and I, I've brought this up many times, Stephanie, um, uh, John Bland, who is uh, uh, the, the business manager of the Boilermakers, during the PES uh, situation here in Philadelphia, when they shut that refinery down after only one unit was damaged out of 33, uh, which is when we actually got into this, like I mentioned earlier. Um, he sure. said, he said to, to to me, and I think he said it on air. When did uh, and I? What really got us involved was that we were we were addressing this situation, and our and our a lot of our political leaders who typically support labor, um, it was crickets. 
Okay, and we could not understand uh, because it just didn't make sense. And and so our initiative to bring labor and energy together uh, is is to is to put together a common sense platform. But also one of the things that John said was, and and we've heard this many times, is when did we, uh, okay, industry, and 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 the political landscape stop working together? Um, certainly together and united we stand here. Okay, and I mean uh, labor and energy in our in our political leadership. Um, when when did that stop? Okay, because it was confusing. Talk about that if you would. No, I mean that's a great question, Joe. It really is, and I'm not quite sure I can I can answer it, uh, you know, definitively. But no, it's it's a, it's a very astute observation, you know, that you have there, and and I think it's critical that we work together and that we, for the common good, and make sure that we've got these, you know, family-sustaining jobs and making sure that we continue to be, you know, Pennsylvania as well as the U.S., continue to be a leader in natural gas and oil development. I mean, we are still, as a country, the number one producer of oil and natural gas, you know, surpassing Russia, Saudi Arabia, which is huge. I mean, it's such an enviable position to be in globally. And, you know, with Pennsylvania, we're the second largest natural gas producer in the state, only behind Texas. So you have, you know, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, you know, in that Appalachia region. And we have such an abundance of natural gas resources. And we have such a big role to play, um, not only on the national stage, but on the world stage of what we can do, you know, with this abundance of natural gas is aid our allies abroad who are beholden to very unstable areas of the of the world, such as Russia. You know, you have a dictator in Russia that is weaponizing energy sure. and, and cutting off natural gas, right? And so we have such a tremendous opportunity to do more, you know, in this country. And, and liquefied natural gas, really, uh, otherwise known as LNG, is, is the way to go if we want to continue to aid our allies abroad. Uh, absolutely, no question about it. Jimmy Snell, uh, business manager, Steamfitters, uh, Local 420, um, he and I have had that conversation, uh, and, and uh, we have uh, had on uh, Representative Martina White here in Pennsylvania, who has a, a big initiative going, down, going on down here in Philadelphia. And so um, we're all on the same page there. And, and uh, so let, 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 let's segue a little bit into... Um, permitting and permitting reform. Okay. So sure. earlier this month in a, in a bipartisan agreement, Congress and, and president Biden agreed to a debt ceiling deal that it also included permitting reform provisions uh, and the first meaningful updates to the national environmental policy act in more than 40 years. But I, I'd like you to comment on that, but before you do, so our listeners understand, okay, what are we talking about when we're talking about permitting? Yeah, absolutely. So whenever you have a project, right, and not just the oil and gas industry, but, you know, any industry that have projects, then you need permits, right, to get this done. So I'll give an example, you know, a, pipe, a pipeline example for our industry that touches our industry, you know, every day is if you want to build a pipeline, expand the pipeline, and depending if it's crossing over state lines, that would be an interstate jurisdiction. If you're building a pipeline within Pennsylvania's borders, that would be called intrastate pipelines. Um, But depending on what kind of pipeline you're talking about, there are different agencies that would regulate and issue permits in order to build your pipeline. So in in one case, if you have a pipeline that's crossing over Pennsylvania lines, you need the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, otherwise known as FERC, 
um, to sign off, you know, on this particular project and issue the permits necessary to get the project done. But what we've seen, unfortunately, you know, for years upon years, is that it, it takes several years to get certain permits to get these projects completed um, and, and done. And being making sure you get energy out there to keep energy costs low, and making sure you're getting the energy out uh, to, to the people that need it. But it's just been a a, a terrible situation over the last many, many years. And, I, and I'll tell you, my entire career, I've always heard about the need for permit reform, efficient permitting, consistent permitting. I mean, that's what, that's what companies need. You know, they need, they need to be, they need clarity right. and they need consistency, you know? So that's what we're talking about. So permitting reform, we just need to get these projects done more expeditiously. Um, we need them to, to be timely because it shouldn't take multiple years to build a project. Absolutely. It's just ridiculous. Time is money, bottom line. Yeah, and there are constant roadblocks in the middle of the process. So uh, yeah. having said that, um, what are, if, if you can give us um, some of the provisions that were included on permitting in the debt ceiling deal, and, and, and how will they help us being able to build more energy infrastructure faster? Yeah, yeah, happy to do that. So, you know, we were very supportive of that bipartisan passage of the debt limit bill because it includes important progress on the federal permitting reform issue. Um, and as I mentioned before, you know, this this did not happen overnight. <laughs> and, you know, the current gauntlet of bureaucratic hurdles. So it's going to take a while uh, to develop a workable process. But with the with the debt ceiling bill, the package that passed. Um, it's absolutely a positive start. You know, it's, it's modest and it's meaningful reform, and, and, I, and we need more. We need to do more, right? We need to look forward to continuing to work with policymakers on both sides of the aisle to build on the progress. But to highlight what the, the debt ceiling bill did, um, four important things, I would say. Um, it, it allows quicker development of U.S. energy infrastructure, and there was one particular project that was highlighted uh, in that package. It's the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And that's a 300 and will be a 303 mile pipeline starts in Virginia down into Virginia, where it will take more natural gas in the mid-Atlantic mid -Atlantic region to the south region, uh, southern region of, of the country. Um, and that's something that will be expedited. So that's a, that's one job that was actually highlighted, which is very unusual, but very much needed. Um, additionally, uh, the bill shrinks the four and a half year environmental process, which is huge. You get all these environmental uh permits done. Um, it provides clearer standards for producers to follow, and it provides greater, it will, it will, we will see greater investments in American energy because of the passage of this bill. But yeah, and bottom line, I mean, we need consistent policies, as I said before, and efficient permitting at both the federal and the state level. So we need that to support domestic energy and infrastructure development, as well as the millions of skilled workers who produce and develop and deliver our energy that powers our everyday lives. And and, and so if we got a, a, just an example of um, how long, you know, and, 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 and we got about two minutes to the break. Actually, we have, I'll tell you what, um, we have a, a minute to the break. Um, so, just before we, and we're going to continue this conversation uh, after the break, but give me an example of how long, for an example, a, a, a pipeline project under the previous situation would take from start to finish. Sure. So I will, I will use the Mountain Valley pipeline example. Um, that is nine years in the making, Joe. This is a project that first went to the regulatory agencies, filed their paperwork, and it was nine years. And the the, um, the, the pipeline is about 93, 94% complete. 
but it's been hung up in the courts, a lot of appeals, a lot of challenges, unfortunately, uh, in the legal system that, that uh, contributed to that issue. But yeah, I mean, that's an example. I mean, nine, 10 years sometimes. And, and at that point, too, some companies have to rethink, you know, is it worth continuing on with no guarantee that we're going to get the permits needed to, to carry out this project? But luckily, with MVP, they got some they got some help here from the feds, and uh, that that will be a project that will be completed. So let's do this. We're gonna go, we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, we're gonna have more from the Labor and Energy Show, and our guest Stephanie Catarino, Wisman, Executive Director of the API Pennsylvania. Good stuff from J. Doc and Stephanie Wisman from the American Petroleum Institute. Stephanie will stay with us on and come back on the other side of the break as we go into the commercial break. More messaging from the Labor and Energy Show. And again, a soft reminder, July, the week, the first weekend of July. Coming to a radio near you in western Pennsylvania, the Labor and Energy Show with J. Doc and Krause, broadcasting and debuting on KDKA, back in a moment. This is a Labor and Energy Action Alert. Did you know the Pennsylvania Water Resource Act, if passed, will charge Pennsylvania businesses for water usage integral to the operation of the businesses, many of which that provide PA residents with vital services. The expenses of charging for such water usage will be astronomical and may jeopardize the operations of the businesses themselves as well as jobs. Take action now. Subscribe to www.gov.net to track this legislation and call your PA state representatives and voice your opinion to oppose the Pennsylvania Water Resource Act. Quality PA businesses and good paying jobs depend on it. What's a Boilermaker? We're the skilled welders, riggers, and craftspeople who will help you grow your competitive edge. We step up when others step back, and we do the job right, on time, on budget, and safely. No drama, just results every time. We're the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, and everything we do begins with our bond. Let's get to work together. Visit bestintrade.com. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. PBF Energy wants you to know hidden RIN costs are adding almost 30 cents to every gallon at the pump and pushing independent American refineries to the brink. It doesn't have to be this way. President Biden can lower gas prices and protect thousands of union refinery jobs by fixing the renewable fuel standard. And he should. Visit fuelingusjobs.com slash take action to urge President Biden to stop the RIN sanity and fix the renewable fuel standard today. Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters is proud to present skilled union workers, including the workers that build and maintain our energy infrastructure. The safest, best trained, and most productive carpenters in the country are on the job. Whether it's energy from nuclear, wind, coal, natural gas, or offshore wind, the EAS carpenters are ready to provide the construction need of an energy industry our families depend on. If you're interested in a job in construction, visit EAS. 
eascarpenters.org or follow us on social at EAS Carpenters. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. Portions of tonight's Labor and Energy Special are being supported by the members of the Labor Union community, including Steamfitters Local 420, Jim Snell, Business Manager, the Eastern Atlantic States Regional Council of Carpenters, and the United Steelworkers. I'm back here on the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. J-Doc right in the middle of a good conversation with Stephanie Wisman, who is with the American Petroleum Institute of Pennsylvania. J-Doc, back over to you, sir. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're continuing our conversation uh, with Stephanie Wisman, Executive Director of API Pennsylvania, uh, having a fantastic conversation, uh, a lot of really great uh, uh, questions and, 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 and even better answers. And right now we're talking uh, about the situation uh, with permitting and, and, and uh, permitting reform for big energy projects, which, you know, historically has been brutal. Okay, ten, nine, ten years uh, to, to, to bring a project from start to finish. I would imagine, Stephanie, that you know companies are are, are not only rethinking things in the, you know as, as they go through the process um, because it can take so long, but uh, probably rethinking even starting a project up until the new reform, uh, the new rep- uh, bipartisan agreement uh, that's a part of our debt ceiling deal. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and having said that, let's, let's talk about what's going on at the, at the state level. Okay. Sure. Uh, are, you know, obviously, uh, are there things that have been done in, in, in Pennsylvania that, 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 that folks in DC can learn from, or are there things that we need to, to do in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, to take better advantage of our enormous shale resources? Yeah, no, absolutely right. So, so at the state level here, you know, Governor Shapiro you know, he made it a point to say, hey, we, we need permitting reform. We, we need to fix this. He has heard, you know, from, from so many different groups about the problems here, and he wants to make sure that we can improve that process. Because as the governor said himself, he hates losing to other states. <laughs> Very competitive, which, which is a good thing. And so I know the governor, one of the first things he did when he came into office is that he did take some action to improve the permitting uh, issue where he created the Office of Transformation and Opportunity and the Economic Development Strategy Group uh, within the governor's office. And that is really meant to be like a one-stop shop to assist with economic development and get get the companies, you know, making sure they were one, you know, one single point of contact and trying to get all the things that they need in order to either expansion or, or build a new project or whatever the case may be. But, you know, what we need is continued cooperation between the governor and the members of the General Assembly, you know, in order to really unlock the benefits of these reforms. Um, and, you know, and that includes a more modern public infrastructure system, increased manufacturing, and additional economic opportunities. Are you uh, optimistic, uh, particularly with, with Governor Shapiro, um, obviously addressing this issue uh, is so early in, in, in his term? Um, what, what are the next, uh, you know, hopefully, eight years look like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I'm very optimistic about about the about what he has said, you know, in regards to permitting reform and the fact that we need to be competitive with other states and making sure that we attract the business that we need here in the state to compete. Um, yeah, absolutely, very optimistic. Um, you know, on what I've seen so far. So let's 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 um, segue a little bit into in, into LNG, liquefied natural sure. gas. Um, 
obviously uh, related to the permitting debate, particularly here in Pennsylvania, is the, 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 the conversation around expanding liquefied natural gas. Um, there are a few plans uh, to potentially export LNG, but there are also, unfortunately, some opposition. Uh, I'd like to start with you know uh, a few uh, a few questions on this particular situation. First, on a national level, can you can you kind of highlight the importance of, of American LNG to, to 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 our global energy security, particularly in light of uh, what's going on in the Ukraine and 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 uh, it, of course in, in a more hostile China. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure, sure. So, yeah, I mean, American liquefied natural gas, or LNG as we call it, is absolutely it's safe, it's reliable, and it is the best option for the European Union to meet critical natural gas needs, as we kind of touched upon a little earlier. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, I think when we saw the war with Russia and Ukraine, that just really put a spotlight on the issue. I mean, this is something that we've seen as a problem for years and years, right? And finally, when you had the war, um, you know, start over there. I mean, that's where you saw natural gas being weaponized by by Putin, and you know, shutting off shutting off the spigots, so to speak, in the pipelines of natural gas. So, what we can do, you know, here in the U.S., I mean, significantly more U.S. LNG is definitely going to be required to fully to fully rebalance the European gas markets in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and resulting in the energy crisis, really. Um, and, you know, with the abundance, as I said before, we have such an abundance of natural gas reserves, and Pennsylvania is well-positioned to help meet that growing demand for reliable gas, both for U.S. consumers and our allies overseas. Because we have such an abundance, we've got more than enough to take care of our needs here domestically, and that's why we have such an opportunity to help and strengthen global energy security and advancing these global decarbonization goals by assisting our allies abroad. Where are we on the waterfront here in, 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 in uh, Philadelphia? I know that Martina White uh, is, has uh, put together a study on, on uh, you know, creating a terminal there. Uh, can, you, can you address that? Yeah, I sure can. And as a matter of fact, I'm really excited because I'm a member of the task force of the Philadelphia LNG Export Task Force. I'm uh, it's a 15-member task force, and I'm one of two industry folks that serve on that. And it's such an honor to be on that. So, yes, just to take us back to the last legislative session. So, last legislative session, uh, the very end of session there, uh, Representative Martina White had a bill, and it was passed with bipartisan support, which it became Act 133 of 2022, and it was signed by then-Governor Wolf that this, this legislation creates the Philadelphia LNG Export Task Force. And the task force is um, tasked with studying what is the feasibility of building an LNG export facility in the Port of Philadelphia, down in the southeast part of the state. Um, and the 15-member task force, as I mentioned, there's two folks, including myself, from industry. You have members of the General Assembly. Um, you have the Philadelphia Building Trades. Jim Snell is serves on that task force with me as well, as well as other leaders in the region. And Senator, excuse me, Representative White is serving as the chairperson of the task force. And we've had um, two, three meetings total. The first one back in January was more organizational in nature, where we elected our chair. We've had two substantive public hearings since that time. We had one in April, and then one held in May, both in the Philadelphia area, where we've had. Uh, testimony from local groups. We've had regulatory experts, policy analysts, uh, and folks from labor uh, testify 
uh, to this subject. And, and you're right. I mean, while there are so many benefits here, there are some that some folks out there that are a little skeptical uh, of something like this. But truly, we have such an opportunity here, you know, for Pennsylvania and the region. Um, if we could get an LNG export terminal built here uh, in the state, and, and just to give you a little history too of you know where do we stand as a country uh, with LNG export terminals? So we currently have seven existing LNG export terminals in the country, and the majority of those are located on the Gulf Coast. The closest one to us here in Pennsylvania is the Cove Point. Uh, terminal that is uh, run by um, the Berkshire Hathaway, and that's in Lusby, Maryland. So that's the closest one we've got. So we certainly have room uh, across the entire eastern seaboard to build yet another facility, and why not Philadelphia? And and, and having said that, um, and this is on an, uh, you know, a national level, how much LNG do we export compared to other countries? Um, and what and what, what's the nationwide potential? Yeah, so there is a lot of nationwide potential there. Um, I don't know the actual amount that currently that we are exporting, but I do know that all of our seven export terminals are at capacity. So we are transporting as much LNG as we possibly can. Now, there are, I think, six or seven terminals that have been approved um, in other parts of the country, but they haven't broken ground yet, and that's going to take several years to get those up and running. So in order to meet the needs and the demands of energy, in order to meet those decarbonization goals around the globe, we're definitely going to need to um, export more LNG uh, abroad. There's no doubt about that for sure. And, and for people that don't know what uh, LNG is, um, could you give them a little bit of a, a tutorial there? Uh, it's uh, liquefied natural gas. What exactly is it? Sure. So you take natural gas which dry natural gas is, is almost 100% methane, right? So that's what that is. So what you do is you take the natural gas and you liquefy it, you chill it to very, very cold temperatures. So that's what would happen when you take it to an LNG export terminal and then you put it on ships. And that is the best way, by the way, by liquefying natural gas, that is the easiest and safest way to transport it to other points around the world. So that's very simplified, but that's essentially what the process is. Yeah, you mentioned, it, you know, safety. Uh, if, elaborate a little bit more on that, if you would, because, um, you know, that's the first thing you hear from people that are, uh, you know, obviously opposing any issue. Talk about, uh, you know, how much safer it is than other means. So without a doubt. So pipelines, you know, it's... It, they are the safest way to transport uh, natural gas and oil. So, and when you take a look at the safety, the safety records of the pipeline industry, we're looking at a 99.99% of crude oil and natural gas are delivered safely via pipeline each year. So while we want to be 100%, I mean, it's a pretty darn good record when you look at that. Um, they're not seen, they're very deep, you know, underground. Um, and it is the most efficient and cost-effective way to move the product. And, and so regardless of how a product is moved, the industry ensures safety across all operations because safety is our number one priority in, in, the, in the natural gas and oil industry. And, and, and having said that, and that's such an important issue, um, again, on a, on, a, on a statewide uh, level, 
uh, the the uh, addition, obviously, of an LNG export terminal, uh, you know, could grow our economy. Obviously, talk uh, jobs and 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 boost, obviously, U.S. energy leadership and security. Elaborate a little bit more on the magnitude of that. If we can, obviously, get this uh, LNG export terminal done uh, you know, on the waterfront. Yeah, absolutely right. So I'm going to hearken back to um, a couple of the testifiers that we had at our public hearings over the last couple of months. And a couple of testimonies in particular in my mind stand out when you take a look at the economic benefits of having a, a facility like this on the Philadelphia waterfront. So Lisa Himber, who's the president of the Maritime Exchange for the Delaware River and Bay, she had testified back in April before the task force that expanding LNG exports throughout the southeast part of the state will absolutely fuel job creation. And she specifically said, you know, the the Delaware River Ports is a huge economic engine for the region. And she cited a study that the exchange commissioned back in 2021 that found over 156,000 jobs depend on the port, and over 50,000 of those are, are directly related jobs. And the port's responsible for almost $50 billion annually in total economic activity and nearly $2 billion in state and local taxes. So, and I think she further said, too, that the cargo imports are valued at $155 billion and exports at almost $9 billion. So that's huge. I mean, any kind of waterfront activity like that. And and honestly, when you take a look at what the experts have said, you know, to to have a terminal like this on the waterfront, it would. Pro- and, and as far as maritime traffic is concerned, you're probably maybe looking at. Um, and I know David Cup with the Pilots Association had said this. You're probably looking at maybe an additional two ships coming in uh, per month. So it's not much more uh, maritime traffic that you're talking about, which which I think is impressive. And then when you take a look at specifically um, at union jobs, um, Mark Freeman, who's the president of the Laborers Local 413, he testified before the public our public hearing uh, last month, and and he said, you know, since the close of the, and you'd mentioned the, the PES uh, refinery, he said since the close of the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery, you know, opportunities opportunities quite frankly have been limited uh, for his workers, and he said an LNG export facility or plant, whatever you want to call it. Uh, would absolutely bring opportunities for his members to make affordable living wages and to continue to send their children to college, you know, as an example. So, you know, an LNG export terminal would likely create hundreds, if not thousands, of construction jobs, and then obviously hundreds of permanent jobs for the region, uh, many of which would be good-paying union jobs. And, and, and having said that, let's uh, with, with the task force, uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting together the study and everything you guys are doing, um, when do you see that uh, coming to fruition? And when do you think we can actually see uh, when the rubber hits the road in regards to uh, making this happen? Sure. So November 30th is when the study, the task force study, is due to the General Assembly and to the governor. So, you know, once this was enacted, it said one year, so that puts us at November 30th since the time the bill was passed, um, to get that that report of recommendations. So the report has got to include the task force's activities and the findings and recommendations to the General Assembly and the governor, as I had mentioned. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, that's what we're trying to look here. You know, what trying to outline the economic benefits, you know, what's the feasibility, what are the regulations that we've got to be mindful of? Absolutely. We've got to be mindful of environmental justice issues, um, and things of that nature. And I would say too, obviously it's going to take investment, right? I mean, companies aren't going to put up the capital investment that's needed to build this type of facility unless they know that it is a welcomed project in the region. So, you know, that's what we're examining, you know, as the task force. And as far as, you know, what's needed once that that report is out there, I mean, that's yet to be determined, whatever the recommendations are going to be, but maybe there's a role of, of the state legislature or the governor's office to, you know, do everything we can to attract that capital needed to build this type of facility. Are you optimistic? I am. I am. Yeah. So, I think this is a tremendous opportunity and just, you know, I mean, just what it means for energy leadership, you know, and the role that we can play in this. So let's segue. We, we have about five or six minutes left. I want to touch base on, on domestic energy production. Um, obviously, uh, you know, Natural gas is, like you mentioned earlier, is really the reason the U.S. has reduced GHG emissions, obviously, to the 1990s levels. But you have this EPA power plant rule that will essentially ban all fossil fuels used for electricity generation by 2038, okay, if it doesn't employ carbon capture. Okay, we're big supporters of carbon capture, but we're not really in a position to build it out at that scale yet. What is the API doing in response to this? rule no you're and you're you're spot on joe um that's exactly right i mean there obviously is carbon capture technology proven technology that is out there but it is not available on commercial scale yet um not saying it won't be i think it will be but it's going to take many years and before before we're there uh so yes we are very concerned about this proposed rule we will be filing uh, official comments uh, to the EPA, you know, on this specific rule, because it, it's definitely a problem, you know, without a doubt. Um, and, and what you're doing, you know, if this were to go through, you're setting us up for failure, essentially. And we're also putting the reliability of the electric grid at risk. I mean, that's something we've all got to be mindful of, that, that we cannot be so ambitious when the technology isn't quite there yet at commercial scale. Absolutely. And it's a lot, it's exactly what's going on with EV mandates. Okay. We're, we're, we're setting, uh, we're setting deadlines. Okay. That it, you know, right now, obviously we don't have the infrastructure to, 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 to even address it's, you know, it's so our regional grid operator released a report earlier this year stating uh, that there may not be enough electricity within the next decade because of fossil fuel, because the fossil generating retirements are outpacing new renewable builds. Okay, uh, we, we have heard uh, the federal reliability agencies warn of rolling blackouts uh, for the same reason. Do you think people understand these realities, especially uh, given these reports coupled with the situation in the Ukraine? Are uh, people who especially have been a natural gas, anti-natural gas uh, you know, advocates starting to rethink their position? One would hope so, you know, and, and I tell you, I mean, it's an interesting t- statistic. The, um, the uh, International Energy Agency, they said, and this is a, a prediction that they have, in the year 2050, 50% of the world's energy supply is projected to come from natural gas and oil by 2050. 
so this is something that we need, right? And everyone talks about the energy transition. Well, you know, according to IEA, natural gas and oil is very much going to be part of the picture, 50% part of the picture um, in 2050. So, I mean, and that's a fact, right? I mean, that's a fact. And, and we, we cannot rush here and, and put our, you know, our, our electric security at risk. And, 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 you know, based on, you know, all these circumstances, uh, your assessment on, on, on public support for natural gas and electricity generation at this time? I think it's, I think it's very strong. I, I think it's very strong. I mean, once folks are educated on the fact that it is a much cleaner burning fuel, uh, and it actually is, is contributing to uh, lessening emissions in the atmosphere. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we need it. I mean, we need it. Uh, we need all forms of energy, quite frankly, in order to meet the demand. And Joe, another interesting statistic, when you, when you talk about demand, right? So, and this is according, these are the United Nations numbers here. And as of 22, 2022, when you look at the global population, in 2022, global population was $8 billion dollars. By 2050, they're projecting the world population is going to increase 21% um, or 9.7 billion. So increasing from 8 billion to 9.7 billion. So we're going to need more energy, not less energy. And we're going to need all forms of energy in order to get there, to meet the demand of not only our country, but everyone around the world. And so that's why we say natural gas is part of the solution. Don't shut us out. We need to be at the table, and we have to have a level playing field. Absolutely, and and uh, you know we're just, and that's why we call it common sense and energy. Okay, working together yes. to come up with great solutions. Okay, and not mandating ourselves into a corner when the facts in many areas, okay, ranging from critical minerals needed, uh, you know, for the for the batteries for EVs. Okay, no one's saying we don't like we don't want uh, electric vehicles. Let's just not paint ourselves in a corner. Let's take our experts, let's take our traditional energy industry and, uh, you know, our renewable industries and our political leaders, our labor leaders, and, uh, you know, listen, let's uh, do these things together. Uh, I, I have a, a, about two minutes. I want to just address, um, we talked about uh, a little bit about carbon capture. I know many of your members, most, most notably Exxon, I believe, are investing heavily in ca- carbon capture. Can you talk about these investments and highlight what they will do uh, from a carbon reduction standpoint and why it's so important yeah it's absolutely important i mean especially when you look at trying to decarbonize heavy industrial processes so you look at hydrogen right i mean and hydrogen can be derived from many different energy sources including natural gas and and what we call that with carbon capture coupled with carbon capture sequestration technology is what we call blue hydrogen when you derive hydrogen from as a derivative of methane is a derivative of natural gas. And that is a much lower emitting fuel source that can really make a dent in decarbonizing heavy industrial activity, uh, which is huge. And so, yeah, it's very, very important uh, to our members here at API uh, for the future of hydrogen carbon capture. And again, you know, you can derive hydrogen from many different energy sources, whether it's renewables, whether it's natural gas, whether it's nuclear, even coal. I mean, 
you need all of it. And again, what we say is don't discriminate on what technology you're, you're deriving hydrogen from. Natural gas has got to be part of the solution because you're never going to get there without natural gas. Absolutely. Uh, Stephanie Wisman, uh, Executive Director of the American Petroleum Institute, API. I want to thank you so much uh, for being our guest here on the Labor and Energy Show. Uh, much appreciated. Continued, uh, you know, doing what you're doing and uh, united we stand. Certainly what we say about our energy situation is it's not a union issue. It shouldn't be a political issue. It's a human issue. And I want to thank you so much for being our guest on today's broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. It is our pleasure. That's going to do it for this edition of the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. We'll be right back here one week from today as we move through uh, Father's Day weekend. I want to take a quick moment to say Happy Father's Day to all of our listeners out there who are celebrating uh, Father's Day. Um, thank you again for tuning in. This is the Labor and Energy Show with J-Doc and Krause. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to tonight's labor and energy special. You can help. Call your congressperson and join the movement to push back on RINs. This program is paid for by Jacob Media Partners. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Jacob Media or its guests and do not reflect the views of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program is pre recorded.